You know, listener, the problem with history is that it just refuses to end. Christianity has been eagerly awaiting the second coming of Christ for just under two millennia now, and Marxists have been declaring the imminent collapse of world capitalism for just under two centuries. And in the past few decades, we've seen the post-Cold War end of history quote-unquote triumphalism of Francis Fukuyama mocked to tears. I am reminded of Walter Benjamin's Angel of History. Benjamin, inspired by the painting Angelus Novus, describes its mystical subject as a being who presides over the endless series of catastrophes that is is human history. The accumulated rubble, the ever-expanding graveyard, is mistaken by some as progress. I think one of the most interesting things about Marxism is that while in theory it claims to be a science, in practice it has always had to harness the power of the irrational. I think that there is a deep psychological meaning to this, especially for people who like to philosophize about the meaning of history, myself included. And I think this might be where I differ from my guest the most, where he believes that we should insist on truth to those who are in error and insist on reason in the face of irrationality, I, for better or for worse, believe that we have to steer directly into the irrational, to explore it, find its secret and hidden meanings, and even internalize the strange non-truths and dream logics that can be found there. But maybe that's just the irrational mystic in me. In any case, my guest this week is a prolific history vlogger and a political commentator, and someone who I've long been a big fan of. And I can't think of anyone better to go dumpster diving in the dustbin of history with, especially in the contentious and frankly LARPy times that we are living in. But before we get into that, I just want to say we did have some technical difficulties at the start of this interview, but those are resolved about a quarter of the way in, so hopefully it isn't too painful. Uh, I should also mention that this was the first and so far only episode that I've ever live-streamed uh, the initial recording of. So if something feels a little off or you hear us you know, talking about the chat, that is what's going on. But with that said, let's put our halos on and get to haunting the ruins. Welcome back to Schizotopia, the official podcast of Schizotopia.net. As always, I'm your host, Maxwell Cody. And joining me today, one of my all-time favorite content creators, YouTube's most notorious Teutonic Anglo, Mr. Kraut and T. Kraut, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for being here. Um, you are a guy who has kind of found himself on the hit list of the far right and the far left at some point in his... Um, content creating career mm -hmm. and so for that reason and, and the reason i wanted to talk to you today is i think that you're probably uniquely qualified to talk about the tumultuous ideological uh, uh journey that america seems to be on today i don't think it's just america but in many ways i also think it's very much an internet thing i believe that or at least it is a field of play in which 
extremism can prosper quite a bit. Keep in mind that a lot of terror organizations use the internet as a recruiting tool. And I'm, of course, obviously not drawing a parallel between, like, an Islamist terror organization and some far-left far extremist, uh, some far-left group of YouTubers or a very far-right group of YouTubers. But I do genuinely believe that, yeah, because it is unfettered, uncensored speech for most, mm. at least a place where everyone can speak freely, ideally speak, spoken at least, it's easy to trap people into certain extremist viewpoints here. Well, the way Very that I, the way that I've I've uh, always kind of looked at it, and and you can correct me if you think this is a little too America centric on my part, but I've always thought that it was kind of like the the weird political polarization of the United States um, gets kind of exported to to Europe and other places. Like it kind of starts here and and ripples hmm. out. I'm unsure about that. Well, what? happened in the United States over the last four years should actually be called something that happened over the last 12 years. Because mm -hmm. if we're being very honest, what what became Trumpism started in the first year of the Obama administration with the Tea Party movement. Absolutely, yeah. And I have read, I've read a lot of um, opinion essayists, etc., etc., who make a very compelling case that the Tea Party, Glenn Beck's experiments, which morphed into Trumpism. Um, I, well, so the way the way that I see it is that the Tea Party kind of turned on the Republican Party, uh, and that and that sort of became the MAGA movement. And then I feel like what we've seen in recent weeks <laughs> is MAGA now even kind of turning against itself to a certain extent. Against everyone, yes, <laughs> against yeah, democracy yeah. It's, it's now, itself. It's now, it's now, it's yeah, now mega. It's now mega versus everybody. Um, and then what was interesting to me is that you know Trump, he didn't exactly apologize for anything that happened, but it seems that for the first time he even became a little bit apologetic um, in, in in maybe his last week in office. And I th I think that's probably because he was genuinely scared about the Twenty Fifth Amendment possibly being I invoked by Pence. Well, I think he, he is way in over his head. This is not over for him yet. I, I, he's in deep shit, if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's anything in US history that can compare to this. Like, he literally tried to, to overturn an election. If a riot, th there's nothing that compares to that. How, um... But I am also very optimistic. I do believe that... End result of Trumpism will be that people will turn away from at least right wing extremism to some extent. I know a lot of conservative Americans who have been frankly just disgusted by last week's events. Well, what my what, what I've actually been been saying to some of my friends um, and, and and followers this past week is that um, or, or the past couple of weeks is that I think that Trump will start some kind of third party movement. Um, that could possibly begin to replace the Republican Party, and the never-Trumpers within the Democratic Party will just sort of be absorbed into the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party will become um, the majoritarian party. It'll become what, I, what I've jokingly called the DNGOP, and, and that will be sort of the future, future battleground of American politics with or without Trump. I just heard through the rumor mill that, that Trump is talking about starting something called the Patriot Party, so I, I may be onto something there. If it if he does actually do that, I believe it will only last for four years. At least 
if it is an attempt to regain the presidency because frankly every single time a third party movement sprung up into the united states the only thing it ever did was siphon off voters from that party that it sprang out of well, we 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 did have the patriot Re party we did have the Please? party that was that was somewhat successful on a state level sure mm -hmm. but if like if trump opens the patriot party and runs for say governor of florida right right puts people in places to run for like Senate seats in Mississippi or congressional seats in Alabama or Texas could succeed, but as so at, at least to, like forming a pressure group that the Republicans will have to negotiate with for power in Congress and the Senate. Mm -hmm. But if they run for president, all they will accomplish is just ensure a democratic victory in 2024. What if, and I know I'm, I'm, um, I might be stretching it a little bit, but I know that Tucker Carlson more and more has moved economically to the left, um, at least in rhetoric. I mean, he's talked about wanting to break up the big tech companies. He's talked about how, um, you know, in any party that secures a, a, a better life for people's families, uh, economically speaking, is going to be the party that wins. If this trumpian populist patriot party if it starts to embrace more of a quote-unquote third positionist economic platform or a more uh maybe like huey long inspired type of um economic platform do you think it could siphon enough votes from the left to actually be formidable um that, that depends on social issues very much because if if you like the I'll say this, it depends on how much they can appeal to African-American and Latino voters. I believe that Trump has a lot of appeal to Latino voters, which mm -hmm. the Democrats have by and large very much underestimated. Mm -hmm. But I believe the extent to how much they can siphon out of left-wing voters really depends on the African-American vote. Or maybe also the like the now unemployed um, former industrial workers of the Rust Belt right. in Michigan, etc., those might vote for him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've always... It's possible. I'll I, give you that. Yeah. It's very I, much possible. I mean, I, I, I made a meme joking about Kanye and Trump teaming up. Um, I was joking at the time, but the more I think about it, you know, it could work. You could kind of have a religious um, uh, black Patriot Party uh, voting base, maybe led by Kanye West. That, that doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility to me. It would be funny. But it wouldn't be something that is particularly serious. Uh, I, um, I'd be I, laughing, I, I, but not because I, I, it was I, funny. I will still maintain that it would mainly do one thing, which is seven votes out of the Republican Party. It would just weaken the Republican Party. And considering that the US has a first-past-the-post system, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it would be detrimental to the Republican Party. Yeah, the, the, the scenario that I'm laying out is like... I honestly think this is over. What's over? That is my genuine belief. Trumpism. I genuinely believe that it's in its death throes. Um, or at least it will be undertaking a very painful and substantial rebranding over the course of the next 10 years. But my God, has this been a disaster? It has been an utter and complete disaster. And it will start to sink in for people just how bad this really was. I see my my thing is I keep thinking it, in the same way that uh, like you mentioned the Tea Party evolved into mega 
it to me it's like what what january with the with the january capital riots will be remembered as is like the mutation of mega into whatever form it takes next i i think maybe the whatever this patriot party um uh thing is i i, I don't know if i believe that it's that it's over yet i think it might be i think it could turn into something oh, very, it's not over in that sense but the current it's not completely over but the current incarnation dead it will have to rebrand at the very least completely change necessarily what it is about but it will have to rebrand because the trump brand is now just toxic to be frank well i um we, we we've been talking so much about the uh, current ideological climate i wanted to ask you and i know this is kind of a broad question but um what what is ideology according to kraut if you had to give a definition of ideology it's um, a framework for which to see society and the world. That's how I see it. Sometimes the framework can be sinister. Oh, say that. That is more in a rarer case. I believe that most ideologies are not necessarily a sinister thing. So ideology is just it's a uh, framework to live and exist in the world. It doesn't necess- it doesn't have to be uh, nefarious. But but people seem to be pretty committed to making it yeah. so. <laughs> Well, in, in, in my ideal ideology, is just basically the framework you pick to particip- to then use it to participate in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. You know, th- what makes an ideology sinister to me is when it removes itself from the democratic principle. It becomes a forceful thing mm. that uh, claims to be right and correct despite how many people disagree with it and therefore having, you know, some sort of divine right... Uh, to enforce itself upon others. One of your I ever did one of one of your favorites of mine um, was called "The Power of Nonsense," and it was about how n- nonsense can become an ideological weapon that you can you can break people down by constantly subjecting them to nonsense. You, you you've been talking a little bit about how you know you think the the mega movement is kind of in its death throes, at least in its current form. Um, to me, it seems like what I'm expecting is for the nonsensical or the irrational elements of the movement to take on some new reinvigorated life. I don't believe so, because the way you co- the thing about nonsense, which makes nonsense or dishonesty or lies such a great tool for totalitarians and authoritarians all around the world is it binds people together a lot. If you both believe in a lie, if you both reject reality, that is a very powerful binding thing to keep a group together. Mm-hmm. And the way you destroy that is through truth, through honesty, by just repeatedly, ruthlessly <laughs> giving the truth, saying the truth, speaking the truth to lies. And there will come a point. This is how you know these structures that are held together by... Um, collective delusion and collective belief in a lie fall apart in the end. They fall apart because truth at some point sickers in. Uh, so th- this is what's been uh, bothering me recently is that uh, deplatforming all of these people, all of these um, Trump supporters and uh, 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 unpublishing parlor and this sort of thing, it, it, it concerns me because I think that it, it's going to make it harder for people to speak to each other anymore. And it's going to be more likely that these people go further and further into their own ideological cave, so to speak. Well, 
Not necessarily completely, because one thing that I noticed on social media in particular with the remaining MAGA crowd is that a lot of them had this dawning realization just how deranged Trump actually was. Um, in particular, after the Capitol riot, that all, all the stuff he said, like, you know, they believed his lies up until it was inaugurated. It turned out, oh, I am really concerned with the people who believed Trump for four years in some cases five years six years seven years you know people who have been with him since the birther movement who or not as long and believed everything he told them and now are basically watching their entire world collapse around them well, I, like I, right I, now there's incredible truth which is he lost the election and they have to accept that truth because not accepting that truth means you know completely leaving reality which is impossible and um it's all a hologram yeah dude. it's all a hologram <laughs> yeah yeah that that is what would literally require to still believe trump's lies and um i'm very concerned with them i'm i they are currently very vulnerable very vulnerable people I mean, because I... they just had their world collapse around them and it is very easy for other extremists to just grab them and fish them out into a new pool of extremism from that give them give them a more a more um uh coherent potent and and possibly more dangerous ideology in its place yeah um, i think it is far more important right now to be kind to these people absolutely. and in that regard what what biden is what biden is doing is very good it's you know reaching out to people saying you know life will continue everything will continue um you may have been wrong you may have believed this nonsense but you know here you are participating in the democratic process what i find very worrying is people who you know the the maga tears crowd you know the the people who enjoy maga tears etc etc because that is very similar to what people did when hillary lost the election mm -hmm. when people did this um the hillary tears stuff and all that and i'm very convinced that doing that radicalized a substantial amount of people back in 2016 mm -hmm. into an uncomfortable, very extremist far-left position. And I'm worried if what happens right now might have the effect of radicalizing people even more. I just read... I read some viral tweet. Um, it, it was some right-winger. I don't remember his name. But he's basically saying that the future of the MAGA movement... Uh, should be to adopt Maoist tactics and balkanize the United yeah. States. I mean, that was point blank what he said. Secession. Secession. <laughs> and I was like, wow, mega Maoism. I, I've been I've been making these these memes called Mega Ball as a joke where, um, uh, you know, like like some kind of like Nazball uh, Trump movement that, you know, whatever. It was a joke. But now you have an actual like right winger saying that he wants the the mega movement to adopt Maoist tactics to balkanize the U.S. I'm like, wow, I can't. Me memes become reality. <laughs> I don't. And and how successful that kind of extremist rhetoric will be depends entirely upon how open we are to accepting people who believed in lies. To allowing to to just say to people, yeah, you were wrong with this, but uh, about this, but it doesn't matter. Come participate in de democracy. You're still my fellow citizen.
I'm yeah, a, I'm a, a, I'm I'm friends with a number of QAnon believers, and I was I was never a Q guy myself. I was <laughs> for the record, I was never a QAnon guy myself. But even though some of the things, or even most of the things that they said, were outlandish or ridiculous, there were some basic things that that did contain um, uh, a a kernel of truth. Like obviously, there is elite pedophilia, there is human trafficking. Like all of these people yeah. were in with Epstein. Like that stuff is all real. The guy did have a you know an island that he was taking um, uh, underage girls to. And, and so I can't say that they're 100% wrong. I just don't, I guess what it always gets me, and I, and I think that this is a, just because our, our brains work in an ideological way. They can't, for some reason, they can't just stop at, yes, there is, there's um, elite pedophiles or something like that. It, it has to be uh, worked into some larger mythology. Well, all conspiracy theories start with a grain of truth, or at least one simple little grain of mm-hmm. truth. And then they expanded from there into complete madness and insanity. And yeah, like we said before, it's the, the, the hard part is that the important part is to just be honest to these people and truthful to not entertain their, to not entertain it when they go into nonsense, mm-hmm. to just resiliently stick to what is true. Say, no, you're wrong about this. This is not the case. Here's the truth. No, you're wrong. Even if they get angry with you. And to stay polite and friendly while doing that. Speaking truth to the powerless in the case of the the um, average conspiracy enthusiast, I guess. Or well, speaking truth in general, I guess. <laughs> speaking truth in general. So Being honest in general. I... I, I don't know where you would put yourself on the ideological spectrum today. Um, something I always kind of liked about you is that you were pretty... Uh, pretty centrist, I think, in in most of your your uh, most of your takes and most of the content that you created. The basic Marxist critique of of liberalism is that liberalism sees itself as being above ideology. Um, it's just conforming to the natural laws of the market or something like that. But the Marxist critique would be that that's just because liberal societies want to conceal the nature of um, class conflict. Uh, what do you think of the, the sort of basic Marxist critique of capitalism, and w- w- where would you put yourself on the spectrum now, Crow? Well, we shall see. My politics have not changed much. I'm still very much a liberal, but the people I started out with just moved away into either the far left or far right. But concerning the Marxist critique of liberal democracy, you know, you can see it very much expressed by modern-day China, um, exclaiming that it is an inherently flawed system. I mean, the fundamental critique of liberal democracy by communism is that liberal democracy is doomed to collapse, doomed to fail in revolution, that it is an outdated system that will eventually go away. And I believe one of the best counterpoints that you can make to that is to just simply say, well, we shall see. We shall see. (laughs) Um, I get frequently asked what to do about China. And my honest response is, how about nothing? How about, because, you know, the communist claim is that our societies are inherently unequal, unjust, Hmm. and brutal, and doomed to collapse. So it might be better to prove the opposite correct by just saying, okay, here we are, a liberal democracy, and here we are doing our best to improve ourselves, to be a better society work within the framework that we have established for ourselves to be the best that we can be and then time will tell which system is more likely to collapse well so that i believe is the ethical 
position to take. Well, what's the the big historical irony for me is is that you know Marx in Marx's view capitalism builds the preconditions for a future socialist society. Um, what seems to have happened in reality, and, and especially in the case of China, is that their their socialist communist revolution has built built up all of the uh, productive preconditions to create liberalism or something like a, a liberal capitalist society. Well, the fundamental flaw of Marxism is that it proclaims to be a scientific theory that interprets history correctly. Mm -hmm. That you know that it claims to have the key to history, that it knows where history is leading to, but that key in the end is. You know, most communist regimes usually just use it as a key to unlock avoiding responsibility. Um, liberalism doesn't have that flaw. We don't pretend to know where society is heading. We don't pretend to know what the end of history will be. We don't pretend to know where we will be in 2000 years, you know. <laughs> and the, the flaws with communism are most easily exposed by just reading communist writing and fact-checking it. Um, one of my favorites is Chomsky, who wrote that Afghanistan is an unconquerable nation, which is a myth that he spread far and wide, because when you read Afghan history, you realize that's not true. Afghanistan is one of the most conquered places in the world. It was the center of the Silk Road. Of course people came to conquer it. Or you read some... I recently read some, I forgot his name, some drooling Corbynite idiot who said that uh, capitalism in decline causes fascism. And I'm, I, I was wondering, like... That's the old Lexington okay. line, yeah. Yeah, that's a... yeah, yeah. If, if that is now a historical, scientific, supposedly theory, well, why did fascist Serbia evolve out of collapsing communism? Right. Does communism cause fascism? Like, you just read their theories, their interpretations of history, because that's what their stuff basically is its interpretations of history and then you point out one after another the flaws in it because one of the great things that we as liberals can do is we don't rely on history to justify liberal democracy history to us is just a thing it's just a chaotic little unpredictable thing we don't know where it's going while the marxist relies on history as you know the supposed petri dish of, and experimental dish that shows where society might be going we don't have to do that and that's our great benefit okay well i we, we got to get into fukuyama a little bit because i i was pleased to see on twitter that mm. you're you're a little bit of a fukuyama apologist too because I, I i'm not an apologist i'm an admirer like when people talk about fukuyama they always talk about the end of history which always... is one of the most misrepresented books yes exactly exactly this is always this is very similar to the the, the the take I have that I always get a lot of shit for. But and and what people always forget is Fukuyama wrote so much more than just the end of history. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my favorite book by Fukuyama is actually a series of two books: is the Origins of Political Order and the Origins of Political Order and Political Decay, uh, which is two really thick books, which are basically, if we summarize, is um, political science and anthropology anthropological and history studies of how different societies from the Middle East to China to South America evolved their social, economic, and political structures. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing book. It is not as it's not really much of a political book. It's just a great enlightening book on understanding how societies shaped, formed, and evolved over time. Why 
certain things are as they are, what led to what and what led to this. Mm. But everyone always fo- focuses on the on the last man, on, on yeah. you know, the his end of history, the last man. How, it's just why, so why, misrepresented. Why, why come time no stop in 1991? I don't get it. This guy sucks. <laughs> that's the... Yeah, that's the brain yeah. Fukuyama take I usually get. I think what I what I found about it is still to be seen if he was right. Well, I was just going to say it is still to be seen if he was right. Anyone who anyone who gave Fukuyama shit about um, End of History and the Last Man should at least check out our Posthuman Future, another book that he wrote, which was just about the potential for transhumanism or um, uh, bioengineering human beings and how that that could affect the the future history of the world and how that could become uh, absorbed by certain authoritarian ideologies. But what he says um, in the End of History is that. Uh, the 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 future history the, the the post Cold War world will be dominated by the financialization of international relations, and that this might in fact trigger people. Um, this might trigger old nationalist sentiments to come back. People will get bored with this big, never-ending capitalist mm-hmm. world, and the the only uh, remaining desire that people will have. And I'm reading into it a little bit, but the only. The only remaining desire that people will have is, is to tear down the the liberal order, and I see that. Uh, sentiment uh, beginning to spring up in, not beginning to, but has been springing up, has been um, intensifying on, on the right and the left. Uh, everybody likes to yes. say that they that, that they hate liberals. Nobody wants to take the title of liberal. And we are seeing that exact thing happen right now. And we have to keep in mind that Fukuyama predicted this happening in the 90s. Yes. In the 90s, he would say that people would become disillusioned with liberal democracy and go for far left and far right things out of a sense of nihilism. That this world, which provides prosperity for an incredible amount of people, is just boring to some. The, d- the destruction of liberal democracy will not come out of some ideological idealism, but out of boredom and nihilism. And it also seems that uh, uh, ideological extreme uh, ideological extremists have a symbiotic relationship. Um, I think ISIS's entire strategy was to try to provoke the the far right of Europe and the United States and try to get them into uh, get us into a, a, a another ground war with them. Well, all ideological entities are symbiotic. Mm. It's not just the extremes. Like we like to bring up the horseshoe theory frequently to talk about how yeah. uh, far right and far left extremists feed off each other. But if we being honest, everyone feeds off another political. We rely on that. What would conservatives, the far liberalism is currently the non-word of, you know, the leftist Twitter mob. And it it kind of, you know, the failures of some liberal politics feed into far left extremist and far right extremist positions. And the other way around, all ideological positions, if we are being honest, feed into each other. Well, kind of like what we were talking about with a with a, a potential post MAGA Patriot Party taking a more economically left wing um, approach, like maybe that would be our maybe that would be what a cynical thing, yeah, isn't th- it? Th- that would be our Hegelian synthesis, I guess, between the Democrats and the Republicans. It it ends. In I, the... I don't think that. I, I think it just plays perfectly into like what Fukuyama said. Mm, yeah. Like why why does someone like Tucker Carlson adopt? leftist economic political talking points not because he's an idealist who wants to see a a left-wing utopia he isn't a marxist no because he's an elitist snob who is bored with the neoliberal world and maybe he's worried about 
the disgruntled Middle America people turning on him. Yeah. Or he is disgruntled with them and turning on them. <laughs> it's it's just the nihilistic origin of it. The um, last thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you are a uh, great student of history um, and, and someone whose content uh, focuses on history. Uh, my favorite alternative historical theory uh, which I actually discussed recently on the um, History Homos podcast, uh, shout out to History Homos, was uh, what the world might have been like if World War I didn't happen. A lot of things that you may think at first that would have not happened would have happened anyway. Like, I am pretty sure that the anti-colonial wars for independence would have continued in veracity. Quite considerably. Well, let me let me uh, let me throw a couple things past you. My my basic position is that without the collapse of without World War One, you don't get the collapse of Tsarist Russia, and without the collapse of Tsarist Russia, you don't get Bolshevism. And if you don't get Bolshevism, in my opinion, you don't get fascism in in um, uh, Germany and, and Italy or Spain for that matter. A uh, counterpoint to that is that Russia had a revolution before the nineteen seventeen revolution. Russia had a revolution in 1906. Sure. Russian society was already incredibly destabilized. There might have been a Russian revolution even without the First World War if there had just been another catastrophe that was badly managed by the Russian state. Be it, you know, a pandemic like the Spanish flu that might have happened anyway, even mm. without the Second World War, or something else. Plague Bolshevism. But... The, those prior revolutions that had happened in Russia were unsuccessful. I mean, the one that was successful was because the Germans let Lenin back in back into Russia, hoping that he would um, foment revolution. The nineteen six, the nineteen six revolution in Russia was actually successfully uh, was actually successful. The Tsar receded his power to a parliament and the, established the a constitutional. They got the Duma. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But by the outbreak of the First World War, the Tsar seized these powers back from the Duma and made himself an absolute monarch again. He used the First World War to make himself an absolute monarch. But you can turn that around and say that, okay, maybe if First World War wouldn't have happened, Russia would have just continued being a constitutional yeah, monarchy. Exactly. Um, that that's kind of my so I I, I had a best case scenario for uh, World War One doesn't happen and a worst case scenario for World War One doesn't happen and the best case scenario I called liberal monarchism because it would just be you would have these monarchies maybe becoming more and more um, intermarried and then also just more interested in kind of nineteenth century style ideas of economic progress and so maybe you you end up with something like the European Union a hundred a hundred years early that would be the the best possible of all worlds. I am pretty much convinced that even if the First World War had not happened, there would have still been a large, long era of conflict simply because of colonial wars for independence. Because by by the 1890s, the anti-colonial sentiments and organizations throughout Africa and East Asia, and East Asia in particular, were just brewing for open conflict, mm. which then would finally erupt, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s. But that would have happened. But Even if the First World War would not have happened, that would have been unavoidable. So I, I guess the, what, what, what I, um, the, the, the position that I take is that at the very least, history would have moved a lot more slowly. And even if you had these colonial conflicts, um, 
well, we can't know for sure. Admittedly, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't. I can't time travel. But no. it, it just seems like without without World War One, the disaster that was World War One, um, kind of giving birth to all of these big uh, fanatical ideological movements. Um, I, I just think that history would. I'm just going it for step for step for step. Like I'm going for it step for step for step. I'm just trying to imagine the geopolitical landscape of 1914 and just imagining what could have happened, what would have gone, and even without the First World War, I believe there would have definitely at one point been a war between Britain and Japan over East Asia. I am pretty sure of that. So, so one of the things... I'm pretty sure of that. So one of the things I talked about uh, with History Homos is that I, I there's it's pretty much impossible that there wouldn't have been like some little war in the Balkans or, or, or colonial conflicts like, like the ones that you're describing. Um, but it just seems like you, it, it would have actually been kind of easy to avoid the large scale full blown conflict kind of in the same way that if, um, the Cuban missile crisis had spiraled out of control and, and, uh, world war three had broken out people who survived that or whatever civilization existed in the future probably would have thought that world war three was, was inevitable. I am pretty convinced that if the Archduke Franz Ferdinand wouldn't have been shot because he was very sympathetic to the causes of the Slavic yes, peoples, yes. that the Habsburg monarchy would have changed up completely into not a dual state, uh, Austro-Hungarian monarchy, but more of a, you know, Austro-Hungarian, Polish-Romanian type, Czech type, yes. like complete equality for all groups thing. This is, that definitely this is exactly why and, and this is kind of like my liberal monarchism scenario that you know ferdinand uh, i know was sympathetic and as far as you know as as far as archdukes go he he was actually pretty uh progressive in his mentality and so this is why you know i always joke when people say would you go back in time and kill baby hitler i always say well i'd, I'd actually go back in time and save franz ferdinand I'd, I'd like to see what would happen i'd say this the the ottoman empire would have collapsed anyway really uh, that <laughs> Yeah, but 1914, no chance in hell to save him. Uh, no chance in hell. Maybe you could educate me on this, because my part of in my in my utopian no World War One scenario, I was thinking maybe if the Ottoman Ottoman Empire lasts, maybe the maybe you end up with a more peaceful Middle East. Because large parts of its land were already protectorates controlled by other states. Okay. Like Egypt was officially still part of the Ottoman Empire, but was controlled by Britain. It was de facto a British colony since 1860, but officially still part of the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire was in chaos under the Young Turk government, and mm -hmm. the Young Turk government was just a complete disaster. Um, very incompetent. Like, yeah, with the, with the triumvirate especially in charge, with Enver Pasha and so forth, it would have fallen apart further. In incompetent and complete disaster, kind of like um, some other Young Turks that I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Stupid yeah. joke. I don't know what the fuck they, they, they named their the show after that it's just yeah but yeah the the ottomans would have been under the young turks by 1914 and the, the disaster that happened then would have just continued even without the first world war i believe mm, maybe it doesn't change that much uh my worst case scenario for for averting world war one is that um technological problems well, something does change i have to tell you something does change please uh, instead of like france and germany hacking each other apart mm -hmm. and instead of britain getting involved etc i am pretty sure that as the ottoman empire would have collapsed even further europe's attention would have completely you know focused on the ottoman empire and to take advantage of it as it collapsed ah. to just divide it up even further amongst each other that would be if no world war one yeah i'm pretty sure europe would spend 
the 1910s and maybe the early 1920s just dividing the Ottoman Empire up amongst themselves. Well, and then for that matter, going back to what you were saying about colonial conflicts, wouldn't that also mean that they'd have the energy and resources to be able to squash any um, colonial rebellions? Yeah, I have to think about that a lot harder because one of the most um, inflaming things for colonial conflicts, one of the things that made them especially brutal, especially in East Asia and Vietnam and China, etc., was the Soviet Union. Because one thing the Soviet Union did from the moment of its founding and after the conclusion of the uh, Russian Civil War was to just ship tons of weapons and materials into various colonies to ensure that they would keep fighting their colonial overlords. So that resource might probably be gone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But on the other hand, some colonies were openly... Like, the Ottomans would have had no chance to keep a hold of the Arab Peninsula. That's for certain. And there are other powers that would have... Man, there's so much stuff there. <laughs> it's just... Fuck. Like, like keep, keep, for example, Iran in mind. Iran, in the early 20th century, had a progressive reformist monarch who wanted to modernize the state and build a modern, almost European imperial state in Iran. And... He was very successful in that mission until the Second World War when the British squashed him to gain control over the Iranian oil fields. Yes. No World War One, no World War Two, no squashing of the Iranian Shah. He might have continued that modernization project um, in a world where the First World War might have not happened. Iran might be Turkey. It would have secularized, modernized, and become a center of the Middle East. See, so I, I, I feel like you're, 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 you're seeing um, my point, though. You're seeing like it's like if we, if if World War Three broke out in the 1960s, the like kind of uh, fucked up world we'd be living in now, we would all say, well, you know, World War Three was inevitable. But like maybe we're living on the timeline where World War One didn't have to happen, and the world would have yeah. just been such a better place if it hadn't. And when you start to um, start to run through some of these scenarios like I'd never even considered this one with Iran you start to see how much better things could have there's only one place where literally nothing would change and that is South America oh I guess you're Um, right there's a reason why yeah there's a reason why Michael Reed calls it the forgotten continent it's just the longest away from everywhere else and the only thing the only impact that the world wars really had on Latin America was that it made Argentina incredibly rich. Argentina was actually a first world country until it fucked it up in the uh, 1950s oh, and I, 1960s I, 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 I and thought, reverted back to normal. I thought you were going to say it made Argentina very fascist because all the, the German... Um, the, the German no, no. German Argentina was... Um, a lot of people don't know that Argentina was amongst the top... I think top 10 wealthiest countries in the world um, 70 years ago. And... That, that is really the only impact the world wars had on Argentina, but uh, on Latin America in general. But mm. Argentina fucked it up and went back to normal again, to being a poor Latin American country. So the, I don't think much would have changed in Latin America if the First World War hadn't happened. It wasn't, but Germany, not just not, not, not just the uh, like Nazi uh, uh, refugees trying to, um, or war criminals trying to escape to South America, but wasn't Germany more and more like, you know, trying to set up little colonies and little experimental utopias. And you know, I thought Germany did have like a, a, a pretty strong relationship with, with Argentina. And oh, South yeah, America. in Paraguay. 
Yeah, in Paraguay, but that failed. Well, the the Argentinian Nazi thing actually developed out of a different thing, which is um, what we often ignore is that Argentina also um, opened its borders to Holocaust survivors quite considerably. Argentina has the largest Jewish community in Latin America. Um, the second largest in all of the Americas. The only one bigger is that one in the United States. Mm. Uh, Argentina just had a complete open border policy throughout the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and to some extent the 60s, because it wanted to import high-educated uh, labor from Europe to build its own national industries. Gave away free land, free grants, etc., etc. Um but yeah, it didn't help the country much in the end because of its institutions and the failure of them. We've been talking a lot about how much historical disasters inform ideology as mm -hmm. we kind of start to inherit climate disasters and maybe even technological mm -hmm. disasters as we develop AI or become, become more and more um, dependent on our internet world. Uh, so to speak, um, I I wonder how much people, especially in the Western world, will start to look to things um, like Xi Jinping's China or maybe even uh, Islamism as their their saviors. Do you have any wild speculations that you'd like to make about the uh, future of ideology or, or or what 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 concerns you the most? I think it was Larry Sidentop who called what China, what is happening in China the um the technological utilitarianism mm. that what is developing what is morphing and evolving out of chinese communism in the modern age is the first um technology influence like digital technology influenced ideology that it, it might be chinese communism just this complete control utilitarianism and it's maybe that will be the first one it's it's disturbing to me to see how much Western tech is going along with it too. Almost like, and this is me being a little bit of a conspiracy theorist myself, but almost like they see China as like the great testing ground for um, stuff that they would like to implement in other countries. For the time being, but I'm pretty sure that it will soon come to haunt them, because what we see with, for example, TikTok and Co, is that this kind of proficient control of masses through digital media will create an aggressive. Chinese industry that will start to compete with the likes of Facebook and Google at some point, I believe, um, if we allow them onto our markets at least. I, I believe there will be a, a, a awakening to that. I, will be, I do believe genuinely that people will look at China as it increasingly becomes creepier and creepier mm -hmm. and more and more invasive and realize that, okay, we need to have a serious conversation about how much power we allow the digital to have over the real over the flesh and blood so maybe some kind of like tech protectionism where we no longer you know we we make it illegal or we block chinese <laughs> apps from being used in the u.s like maybe kind of like what trump want to do with tiktok maybe more of a private maybe more of a private um protectionism like communism evolved out of the industrial revolution just an unfettered mass production where we allowed complete exploitation of any and all labor. Mm. And the result of that exploitation was the development of Marxism. And then we had to counteract Marxism by actually implementing rules and regulations to ensure the safety, well-being and wealth of the average factory worker. And 
maybe something like that will happen with the internet. Maybe we will just enact laws and regulations that ensure this privacy, etc. Um, I, I, I can imagine a scenario where China um, makes its its tech and its apps very appealing to its new colonies, because uh, as I'm sure you know, China has been um, hard at work uh, buying up as much of, of Africa as it can. And it, what I understand with this whole Belt Road initiative uh, of Xi Jinping is that he wants to make China the new economic center of the world. He seems like he's pretty well on his way to do it. Oh, yeah. He wants to make the sea irrelevant. That is the big, that is the big China thing. It is deep, not, deep water navigation. It is ocean trade that disconnects China considerably from Europe. And if China can make the ocean irrelevant and connect itself to Europe through Siberia or Central Asia, that would, it would be substantially limiting to the United States. It would make China incredibly important. It would make it the center of the world again, if they managed to somehow do that. China wants to kill Leviathan and raise Behemoth, so to speak. You could say that, yeah. Well, not necessarily. They just want to return to the old Eurasian world order that existed before the New World. That is what I believe is going on. Which that is... They would like to return to that. That is so funny to me. Like, the idea of going back to, like, the ancient... Like, a new technological version of the Silk Road uh, being rebirthed <laughs> in, in the 21st century... Um, it is crazy to me. But that is what they want. That is what they want. Because it would leave out the Americans and it would leave Europe at China's mercy. This is me getting into like some uh, science fiction speculation, but wouldn't that just galvanize the United States to try to make space trade a thing? Yeah, but there's always technological limitations to that one, isn't there? Like, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. When I look at these uh, Elon Musk uh, SpaceX rockets that are able to take off and then uh, land in, in the same spot on the same pad, um, that that blows my mind. Like, it doesn't look, it doesn't look real to me. But I'm imagining a world where you've somehow made it cheap to uh, shoot rockets into low orbit as a way of um, defeating uh, uh, China's new Silk Road. I don't see how you can, you know, transport tens of thousands of tons of products and materials through rockets. If you Maybe through a space elevator, but even that would be questionable, but I don't see that happening. I believe the best chance we have is, like I said before, by improving our own societies, by improving our transportation infrastructure ourselves. Okay, what if China makes a high-speed rail line for transporting goods from Beijing to Berlin? Okay, we counteract that. We build a high-speed high speed rail line connecting Buenos Aires with New York. So, we, we think big, more or less, so like this, China is. That's the big well, strength this, of China. It's so, thinking bigger than us. So then this is, my, this is my nightmare then, because we can't get our shit together, especially in the United States, we can't get our shit together on anything. We couldn't even get the high-speed rail for in California now. that I voted for. Um, I, it's, it's hard for me to imagine us becoming competent enough to do any of these large-scale uh, projects anytime soon unless you outsource them. I'm going to sound like a crazy libertarian here, but unless you, like, you know, hire Elon Musk to do them and give him the the, the authority to uh, to do so. And I also, I just... Maybe that is the solution. Maybe <laughs> that is the solution. Yeah, maybe that's it. We, we don't know what will be the impetus for, for us, you know, getting our shit back together again, but we eventually have to. The we old... can't lumber around in the current status quo. The only way to, to uh, compete with China is to make, uh, you know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos tech czars or something. But that, that sounds pretty good too. The only way to compete... Well, right now, we're not even competing with China. <laughs> no, no, we're because not. Because we're, we're not... 
we're not thinking big. We're not thinking big. China is thinking big and implementing its plans. We're not doing any of that. None of it. This is why I'm like, I'm a little bit of an Elon Musk sympathizer. Definitely not a Bezos sympathizer. Because he thinks big. Because, yeah, at least he tries. Because and, he thinks and, and, and it's like most most of the ultra rich just hide their money in offshore accounts and sit on it. They don't do anything interesting with it. Where at least Elon Musk is trying to do something with it. That's money. a very good point. That's a very good point you're making because the Belt and Road Initiative is everywhere in Chinese media. They constantly talk about it. It is their think big thing. It's like what the space race was to the Americans, what yeah. getting a man to the moon was to the Americans in the 60s. That is the Chinese thing. We will defeat the sea. We will make the ocean irrelevant. We will be able to trade with Europe through the Himalayas, through the deserts of Central Asia, and through the plains of Siberia. We will conquer these lands and thereby regain our influence and our trade networks into Europe again. And we need a counter-dream, a counter-big idea, a counter-thing that we could call our big goal, you know? Okay, and what can we imagine in that regard? Can it be the high-speed raid line that uh, connects South and North America? Be it something. There is a need for a big think, for lack of a better word. A big idea. Something that can compete with China's big idea. Infrastructure idea and futuristic idea. I think it's... And I also think it's a great tragedy that kind of the biggest idea... Uh, the, the, the biggest infrastructural idea that Americans have heard in years was Trump's wall. Yeah. It's, it's a ridiculous idea. Oh, someone in the chat just pointed out something very important, which is something that is often overlooked, that Russia is sabotaging the highway projects along the new Silk Road project. But like that, that gives away a lot. China is so scary that Russia is deliberately fucking <laughs> sabotaging see, see, my, its plans. My, my take is, though, is that when you look at the... Um, demographics and the just like the the social stratification in russia and like how how they're that's doomed their negative yes, population, that it is doomed that they're going to get absorbed by china they'll become like a protectorate of china that that's what i think is going to happen I call yeah russia yeah, yeah. They, they are going to be they are going to be in a tough negotiation position 20 30 years from there and that's why they are currently so aggressively expanding and snatching whatever they can yes because this is their last chance to be aggressive for like the next 50 60 I, years yes exactly so they grab whatever they can now. I, I always refer to Russia as the junkyard empire. And like everything they do is out of total desperation. Every every move they make is out of total desperation. I actually think grabbing uh, Crimea the way that they did was just a, yeah. was a huge act of desperation, not really an act of strength. And, and when you actually look at like the rates of alcoholism, the rates of um, mortality of young men, um, the rate of abortion. Demographics. Yeah, all of it. All of it. It's like every, on every single everything. On every single level, it's like Russia is done. It's done as a country can be and they're just on their way out and so i just think like it, it's going to be perfect for china because china will just be able to colonize russia basically and i feel like a lot of russians will welcome this they'll be like yes yeah, some some chinese competency to save us from from the ruins well it's it's more like a negotiation point it, it, russia will still have some power and what it is grabbing right now it is basically just grabbing to be able to use it as a negotiation chip on the yeah. bargaining yeah yeah, it's it's grabbing what it can in the Middle East right now very aggressively because it wants to use the Middle East as a bargaining chip, S sell out its influence over the Middle East to for something else in exchange over the course of the next 40, 50 years. And I guess I guess what. But who knows? Maybe maybe the birth rates change dramatically over the next couple of decades. Like maybe, it's very hard to predict. Maybe they're able to do something. But I um I often I, I guess my like 
sci-fi nightmare, not to sound too xenophobic here, is that uh, more and more of the world kind of goes the way of Russia, especially the Western world, and, and people start to look to China and say, at least they have something that works. We're willing to give up uh, any any of these uh, quote-unquote childish notions of rugged individualism or anything like that in, in favor of a system that... that um, that it, that can at least get the good um, social scrapyard empire, and that Russia and that China will kind of be there to efficiently pick up those scraps, and people will welcome that because they'll say, "I don't, you know, at least this works. At least this will save me from um, uh, uh, climate change or political turmoil or, or or this sort of thing." And I, when I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of like Gen Z politogrammers, people who are significantly younger than me. And it's funny because a lot of them joke about getting Z-pilled and they'll, they'll even say like, you know, I, I want democracy to work. I'd like it if the Democrats could get this, that or the other, but maybe we just have to accept that China is the way of the future. I, I hear that, um, at least in, in my corner of the internet from the younger generation. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yeah. Maybe it is. That's the thing. Maybe it is. Like right now, they're doing pretty damn well. <laughs> Yeah, they're kind of, it might be the case. They're kind of winning right they now. They win out. Yeah, it might be the case, and it's a realistic option. I mean, I obviously think it is a bad thing, but if it is a bad or good thing, is ultimately for you know our audiences to decide, for people to decide. But yeah, we're at least talking about the countermeasures to it. <laughs> what could be done? The thing is, though, that the Chinese economic structures are something that I believe will be its downfall. How so? It's, well could be it's down they're extractive economic institutions they're under state control and not just state control like you need um you need to be within a certain coastline elite to be able to do business in china there's not much creative liberty in china there's not much you can do right. with whatever economic prosperity you carve out for yourself it's a very restrictive economic model it's not as restrictive as the soviet union which was a complete disaster and could only lead to collapse the Chinese economic system still has the ability to participate in a global market and within an internal market because it isn't something that is, you know, dependent on made up um, quotas by politburos for standards of what is economic success and not, but based on what people actually want to buy, etc. And from that perspective, yeah, it could maybe um, persist. It definitely will persist longer than the Soviet economic model. Well, so what I always, but I'm not so sure if it can persist entirely. What I always heard about this, so maybe you, tell me if this is a myth or not. I what I always heard about the Soviet Union, especially the late Soviet Union, is that they were having people, you know, melt down uh, metal brackets or like metal parts, and then shipping the the sheet metal back to the factories that would make the the sprockets or the parts. So nobody was actually producing anything. They're just yes. employed to, to um, yes. do useless yeah. work. There, there, there are many examples of this. There's, there's for example, um, a train uh, company, right? Kept um, shipping coal to the Pacific coastline and back to Moscow over and over again, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, with the coal not actually ever okay. going anywhere. Yes. But the exact... Yeah, yeah, but the executive of the coal company could write down that um, we transported this and this many tons of coal. Yeah, business <laughs> you know, has never and been that better. was a metric. Yeah, this was a metric used by the Soviet bureaucracy just to say, oh, yeah, this is an economic success. Another thing is that there were factories who just kept the machines running through the night while nobody was working. 
so they could fill out the electricity bills, the bureaucrat who ran the factory and said, look, this is how much electricity we spent, therefore we are an economic success. And what that shows you is that under an extractive economic um, system, which doesn't participate in a market, the only way to actually get a benefit for yourself is by cheating the system and by scheming and scamming. Broken economic systems incentivize this kind of, you know, sleazy behavior. It's funny. And that's why they're also doomed. For me, the only way you can make sense of uh, actually existing communism is to not think of it as Marxism, but think of it as sort of a theology. And it's funny to think about all of this useless um, um, uh, labor because it's it's almost like uh, uh, taking a sacrifice to to the altar. Like you're 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 burning these sacrifices, uh, you're burning this electricity, or you're even you know transporting this coal and and and, and uh, running this train almost as like a sacrifice to the um, divine communist god or something like that. Well, it's also just this, nobody really knows what a post-communist society is supposed to even be. Right. I mean, what 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 is what I saw not a post-communist, a post-capitalist society. What is that supposed to be? Can you even imagine what that is supposed to be? A world in which nobody works for their own needs. I mean, to me, in which nobody works or innovates for their own desires, for their own needs, to gain something themselves. It, which is completely selfless for everyone else to me it could only work if it was like you had this would be like a one man's utopia is another man's dystopia because to me the only way that like something like marxist communism could truly work and actually get to the late stage communism uh where the, there is no more state or, or capital or anything at all people have completely forgotten about it it would have to be like almost like a technological aristocracy or maybe even like a technological Amish world <laughs> I, mean, I mean just Amish in the sense that they're all like very religious and are okay with living um, uh, austere lives or something but where otherwise the machine that's another thing about itself. communism yeah. because of the fact that there's no innovation it basically always creates technological time bubbles like the Soviet Union is a great example if you visited a coal mine or a steel plant in the Soviet Union in 1990 they would be using the same equipment at the same machines that they used in 1930 right. when these Soviet economic institutions were built because there was no incentive to innovate, to increase production, to make the factories more efficient. So they kept using the same rusted out old diesel trucks, the same old machines. They never innovated the machines. They never made the machines more efficient or better because there was no incentive to. And it created a time bubble. Communist, you know, the Soviet Union of the 1990s was very much the same as the Soviet Union of the 1930s. Right. The best example of that is North Korea. It's a time bubble. It's forever stuck in the year 1950. That, I was just going to say, that's what's so strange about North Korea is that most of North Korea, it's basically still 1950 there, um, with the exception of the elite who do get yeah. to enjoy some, some um, uh, technology. Someone pointed out in the chat, it is inherently reactionary. And that is true. It's, it's not just reactionary. Communism is status quoism. It creates the time bubble now, here now. Communism basically says, here now is the time to abandon capitalism because we as a society have evolved far enough to abandon it. We don't need capitalism. We don't need what capitalism brings, the innovation of technology, etc., etc., creative destruction, all these other economic processes. Now is the time to just abandon development and become communists. And just imagine being stuck in the now forever it's that, not reactionary it's just we're now 
this is it this is the future it's funny because on one hand they it's like they 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 took the 19th century sort of progressivist um progressive ideology that soon we will get to the end of science and we'll get to the end of history and um you know like there are people who thought that um trains were the were going to be the the greatest form of uh, human transportation ever created like they sort of take that they freeze they try to freeze the world oh, yeah lenin lenin famously claimed that the electrification of the world will bring communism yeah yeah, yeah. that like, as soon as people get electricity there will be that's communists. it that's it we only we're only one we're only ever one step away from from perfect communism but then what's funny is that when you then you have actual existing communist societies they immediately have to revert to older ideas of power where it's like stalin is sort of like the new czar and the the way that the communist party um yeah uh, operated in, in the soviet union was kind of like just taking the place of the old uh, orthodox church yeah very much so but i guess to um tie it back in with fukuyama mm. I think uh... his big point, his big point was that the struggle over ideologies that claim to interpret history ended with it, with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. That was his big point. But in a way, he was wrong and in a way he was right. I mean, we still have to deal with the Chomskys of the world who claim to have the key to unlocking history. You know, we I, I read Naomi Klein, another Marxist who claims that, you know, tackling climate change will co bring communism. So we've gone through all these things now, you know, we've gone through electricity will bring communism. The steam engine will bring communism. Nuclear energy will bring communism. Um, the internet will bring communism. AI, well, AI will bring will communism, yeah. <laughs> in the end. Uh, I, yeah. Ch Chinese AI, I could actually believe that one. No, I, I don't. I don't believe that one. I, I believe that the previous ideas and notions have just completely just discredited the original idea, wouldn't like the, the experiences that we've made over the course of the last century in particular. Wouldn't it be like the grandest historical irony of all if China takes over the world, it builds the perfect communist AI, but then that AI becomes self-aware, but it's like a um, it's like a Reddit neckbeard libertarian? That would be funny. <laughs> I think I can give you the good example. Um, I, I had a conversation with uh, uh, a Marxist anarchist quite a while t ago who said, you know, if we abolish the state and private property, etc., etc., and limit everything to people, you know, that all power will be completely with people, it will naturally become Marxist, such a society, right? No, it'll um, naturally become Lord of the Flies. Not necessarily but... <laughs> naturally, but there will be an inclination. Not necessarily, yeah. N not necessarily naturally, but the people in such a community will focus on what is best for the community and through focusing what is best for the community will become a Marxist society. And I brought up to him the state of Glarus. Or was it, yeah, Glarus. Have you ever heard of Glarus? I don't think so, no. Glarus is one of the founding states of Switzerland. Okay. Uh, Switzerland was created during a peasant rebellion um, against Austrian overlords. Mm -hmm. And Glarus is one of the founding states. And Glarus is one of the most unique places in the world in that, you know, Switzerland is a confederacy already federal law is barely ever passed it only gets passed when all states approve of it or by national referendum right mm -hmm. and the state of glarus is even more extreme in glarus every single piece of state legislation and i literally mean everything from budget plans to basic regulations about traffic everything has to be voted on by the people directly democracy they have elections once every month where they vote on every single damn bill in the state of Glarus. 
They don't really have politicians in Glarus because all power constantly remains with the people. And I brought this example up to this Marxist anarchist because Glarus gave women the right, was the last place in Europe to give women the right to vote in March 1994. Because you have to get all Glarus the men to agree to it? Sing, not just, that is not just the point that I'm making. It was the last place to criminalize domestic violence in 2004. Glarus is the single most conservative place in Europe, in the world probably. There's no separation of church and state. It is because all the power lies completely with the people, and it is the people themselves who decide what is best for them. These people decided to create a very conservative society. And there's, there's no... Uh... No, no, no progressive leadership can arise to actually lead the people. Everything just stays at the base ah, of the shit. culture. Yeah, I got the wrong state. Sorry, I got the wrong state. It's not Glarus. It's Appenzell in the Horn. Someone just corrected me. Sorry, got the wrong state there. But yeah. And so, what is the name again? Glarus is Appenzell in the Horn. Uh, <laughs> we we apologize to I'm any of our listeners it. from Glarus. Appenzell in the Horn. That's that's the name of the state. Uh, yeah, sorry, I got it wrong. I'd just like to say sorry to the people of Glarus. Uh, we don't think that you're backwards or anything. We understand. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't think they're backwards. And I, I'm not. I'm not doing this as a value judgment. I'm just saying, you know, this predictive historical model yeah. that people like this Marxist anarchist use, where they say that, oh yeah, you remove the state and everyone else will focus on the, these predictive historical models that are proclaimed to be scientific are more often than not completely wrong and produce the exact opposite of what they claim that they produce. <laughs> Fuck. What, what? Fuck, I just read it incorrectly. It's not, you know, I, I just, I, sorry, I have to correct this. I said inner Hoden, but it's pronounced inner Roden. Okay. Inner Hoden means internal ball sack. So I got that one. Sorry for that. Uh, okay, well, we would like to apologize to uh, the internal ball sacks of the world. We don't think that your um, system is terrible and that you're backwards or anything like that. Yeah. There's a picture here from the Wikipedia article that I should show you because it is really you know how politicians in most democracies have to swear an oath of office mm -hmm. um, here this is in this Swiss community here it's not the politicians who swear the oath of office it's every single citizen <laughs> swears the oath of office <laughs> because they all vote on every piece of legislation well, I, I, I was just gonna, yeah. I was just going to say, as someone who was who was in the Occupy Wall Street movement, like it, it does become clear to you, or at least it became clear to me uh, uh, through through the process of being uh, uh, being in that movement that um, the idea that you could run a whole society through general assemblies uh, becomes kind of laughable when you realize, like, you know, you can't even decide whether or not people are allowed to uh, smoke cigarettes uh, at the general assembly or not at the via general assembly. All right. Anyone you want to give uh, a shout out to, including yourself? Well, maybe just yourself. Uh, thank you for having. <laughs> thank you for having me. I'm very glad to be of service. Thank you. Absolutely. I mean, I've been a, a huge fan of yours for years, so it, it was a, a, an honor for me to get to talk to you today. I really appreciate it. Well, there's no war in that. I'm just some idiot on the internet. <laughs> Don't, <that's> <laughs> <me>. <laughs> All right. Well, Kraut, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too, my friend. Take it easy.